This is our final week in the sermon series that we've entitled The Armor of God. You guys are familiar with it. We've been looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. And as you know, if you've been here over the last you know, couple months, that in chapter 6, Paul speaks of the armor of God. And of course, living in the world that he lived in in the first century, he would have had in mind the armor of a Roman soldier, which would have looked something like this up at the screen right there. It's helpful to know that the armor of God passage that we will read in just a moment again for the, uh, you know, the eighth and final time over the last eight weeks is really the last section of this book of Ephesians or letter of Ephesians, which is actually true. And so what's interesting is that Paul talks about all this other stuff, and then he ends with this idea, this concept of the armor of God, this armor of God metaphor. And so it's pretty important for us to know what preceded this discussion of the armor of God that made Paul think, I need to wrap it up this way. And so many scholars make a very simple outline of the book of Ephesians, and it's doctrine and duty, doctrine and duty, what's true and what to do. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul focuses on doctrine. In chapter 1, we read this, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is Jesus, in him, that is Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, that's a different word there, there are multiple words for sin, according to the riches of his grace. So right there in chapter 1, Paul begins with doctrine, what's true? Chapter 2, we read more doctrine in this letter to the Ephesians. You are familiar with this verse, probably. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, that is, that faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do more doctrine, more what's true. Chapter 3, more doctrine. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, that's us, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul spends the first half of this letter talking about what's true, what's true, what's true, what's true, and then he moves from doctrine to duty, from what's true to what to do. In chapter 4, Paul addresses our heart health. He writes this, beginning in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Then in chapter 5, more duty. He writes about how we're to relate with one another. In verse 1, he says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. There's a lot more to the duty section. Paul talks about husbands and wives and how they're to relate to one another. He talks about parents and children and how they're supposed to relate to one another. He talks about bosses and he talks about employees and how they're to relate to one another. And he ends all of this, the doctrine and the duty, the what's true, the what to do, with a warning and an encouragement. The warning is that you are under attack from the evil one. 
It's a warning. You have a real enemy who is really at work in your life, who is really at work in the lives of those people who you love the most. There is a warning. But there's also an encouragement. The encouragement is this, that God has given you weapons and the armor that you need to stand against the attacks of the evil one. Let's begin by reading Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, right? Not standing in your own strength, you're standing in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You're always drawing us out of darkness into light. And as You draw us into light here, we realize that we have an enemy. We realize that not only do we have an enemy who is at work against us, Father, but we have tools that You've given us that we might stand, not least of which, of course, is just the gospel, Father that our hearts and lives are protected not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of your Son. Father, that we stand not in our power, but in your power working through us. And so, Father, I pray today that as we study your word, we take a look at it, Father, that our ultimate hope would be in you, our defender. Father, please protect us. Please watch over us. Father, please keep the evil one at bay. And Father, when It's good for us to have to engage in that fight. Father, let us do so with integrity. Let us do so with honor. Father, let us do so in the power of your Spirit and with your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you watched a number of sword fighting scenes, one of the things that you would have probably seen is that the people who were really masters of their craft, they knew their weapon intimately, right? They take care of it. They sharpen it. They pay attention to it. They really know it. But they don't just know it. They know how to use it. So that's really kind of what we're going to talk about today. Let's start by looking at what this weapon in Ephesians chapter 6 is, the sword of the Spirit is, and how to use it. We'll begin by looking at what it is. Number one, let's begin by looking back at verse 17. Again, I'm going to read it. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Clearly, Paul here is speaking of using the Word of God in our battle, in our fight against evil and against the evil one. Even more interesting to me is how when we employ the sword of the Spirit, if you look back at verse 17, it seems that the Holy Spirit somehow uniquely and particularly empowers the use of the Word of God in that battle. So the effectiveness of God's Word doesn't ultimately depend upon our strength or our skill or necessarily upon even the greatness of our knowledge but rather it's upon the strength of the Holy Spirit working through us as we issue God's Word. What a great reminder that, again, our ability to stand isn't ultimately about our own strength, but it's about God's strength working through us. 
In the Old Testament, we read about Scripture's worth. When, uh, when we were children, many of us probably learned Psalm 119, verse 105, if you guys remember it, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In other words, God's word is vital for us to walk in this life without stumbling and to know where to go and to know how to get there. Ironically, yesterday um, I ran a 21-mile trail race. Some of the crazy people that did it with me are in this room this morning. And you know, when you're running for 21, seven hours roughly, and at some point in time during this race, I found myself think, singing the old Michael W. Smith version, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I was literally singing it when I was running. It was funny. No ACDC, no you know, Guns N' Roses. I'm singing Michael W. Smith as I'm running. But I was singing, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you don't recognize that song, that reference, it's because you're a lot younger than I am. So anyway, as children, we may also have learned the Scripture in the New Testament where Paul writes the following, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there's a lot there, but in that key verse, Paul gives us another uh, vital aspect about Scripture, and it's that it is theonoustos, theonoustos in the Greek, or God-breathed. In other words, Scripture isn't just a collection of letters and journal entries from a bunch of religious people. In some unique way, God breathed out His words through the biblical authors and their writing so that we might know Him, His Son, ourselves, and the way that we might be saved. I'm going to keep going here. In preparation for today's sermon, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon on the sword of the Spirit from all the way back in 1992. So you can actually go to Redeemer's website and you can look at all of Tim Keller's uh, sermons. They're now all free there. But in that sermon from 1992, Keller made the point that in order to use the sword of Scripture, we have to know how to use it. And he lamented 31 years ago that American Christians had a dangerous paucity of biblical knowledge compared to previous generations of Christians. In other words, the, the Christians in 1992, which by the way, that was quite a long time ago now, they, they knew much less Scripture than the people that preceded them. And what's interesting is as I was listening to it this past week, I realized, well, if that was true in 1992, that we don't know Scripture very well, especially in comparison with previous generations of Christians, how much more true would that be in 2023 with all the distractions that we have now from social media and TV, et cetera, et cetera. Every now and then, as I'm watching a movie, I watch a sword fight scene, and maybe you do this too, but I wonder, how would I have done in that sword fight scene, right? If I was in that battle, you know, if I was there, you know, the very first Star Wars and Darth Vader, you know, was the one where Darth Vader fights Obi-Wan or whatever, if I was in Obi-Wan's position, would I have been able to cut down Darth Vader? Probably not. I would have probably lost. How would I have done against Commodus in the Colosseum mentioning, uh, you know, Gladiator? I have no doubt that he would have killed me if we had gone for a race, if we had wrestled. I could have won those. Sword fighting, not so much, because I have zero knowledge of and training in swords or lightsabers for that matter. I would have almost gotten, definitely gotten killed in those battles. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul reminds us that we are not in a movie, we aren't playing a video game, and we're not just reading a book. We are engaged in a real battle with a real enemy who, by the way, is technically hell-bent on destroying the image of God in 
us. And if he's right, that is Paul, and I believe he is, then we had better get to work on our swordsmanship. Question is, what does that mean? At a bare minimum, it means reading your Bible regularly. Now, over the years, we have recommended something called the Redeemer Formation Daily Devotional. It used to come out as an email. Now it's an app that you get on your phone, and so you can simply go to, you know, whatever, whatever device you have. You can go to where you get apps, and in there you can go to the uh, Redeemer Church website there, and you can download that, and then you can get the Redeemer Formation Daily Devotional. There's a morning and an evening uh, format. There's Scripture readings. There's even guided prayer. And what I would say is if right now you're sort of floundering and sort of every now and then you read the Bible and every now and then you kind of pray, what I would recommend is that you go ahead and download this. Maybe you do it right after church today and that tonight you get started with the Redeemer devotional uh, formation, formation devotional. I would say that's one level. I would say another level is other than just reading Scripture, which we need to do, I would also recommend that you begin memorizing it. And so if you're old like me, you could very simply choose a verse maybe from the Redeemer Formation Daily Devotional, and you can actually physically write it on a note card, and you can keep that note card on you know, the dashboard of your car, you can keep it in your pocket throughout the course of the week, you can try to memorize that Scripture, or you could take that same verse and you could do it in the context of one of your pathway groups. That would be a great thing to do and then hold one another accountable for doing. But we need to know Scripture. We need to memorize Scripture. We need to read Scripture. We need to develop our swordsmanship because, again, whether you know it or not, you are under attack and you need to be prepared to fight. So, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, if you will. We need to know our weapon, but the question is, how do we use it? That's a different thing. And so that's the next point today is wielding the sword of the Spirit. Now, perhaps the clearest example that we see in Scripture of, of, uh, of Scripture being used as a weapon against the evil one is when Jesus was in the wilderness immediately following His baptism. We read about this encounter between God the Son and the tempter in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to read 11 of those verses of that account. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him, that is Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So just to unpack this very briefly, Satan goes to work with a fastball right down the middle of the plate. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days, and so he was hungry. I've pointed this out before, but to say that Jesus was hungry seems like a bit of an understatement. 
I'm hungry when I eat at 1 o'clock instead of 11.30. I'm, I'm hungry right now, actually. <laughs> After 40 days in the wilderness, I would definitely eat a pine cone. Like, I would, it doesn't matter. I would try to eat anything. In fact, it would, you'd be hopeful that we weren't stuck out there together because, you know, those old cartoons when you look at the person on the island with you and they look like a chicken leg with a human head on top. Just saying. Anyway, this time, looking at this passage, I studied the Greek a little bit more, looked at it in the NIV, looked at it in the ESV, and both of them define this word as hunger. It's actually the Greek word panao, and the word, that word was used to describe poor people in Greek society, and it actually can have this other meaning of to be starving. So, like, when you go to another country and you see their poor people and they're actually starving, it can mean to pinch with hunger. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates panao as extreme hunger. And though hunger is technically correct, so it's not like it's a bad translation, it seems to me that if I were doing that translation that I would use the word starving, or as Eugene Peterson said, extreme hunger. That might be more of an apt description of how Jesus was feeling. He would have been weak. Jesus would have been deeply vulnerable. He would have been desperately hungry when Satan showed up with this offer of bread. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3, Jesus won, Satan zero. So if the first temptation was a little bit of a fastball right down the middle, the second one is a little bit more of a curveball. Look at how Satan responds to Jesus this time. Satan once again questions Jesus' identity as the Son of God. That was part of the first temptation as well. But this time he says, prove it. And then, on top of saying, prove it, Satan uses Scripture himself in this temptation. Satan quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. That's pretty high-level stuff. Once again, however, Jesus responds with Scripture, this time quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Bam, Jesus 2, Satan 0. The final temptation is interesting because it almost seems a little too obvious, a little too transparent. It's a little like in baseball when a pitcher throws a ball right down the middle of the plate, not at 100 miles an hour, but at like 65 miles an hour. It's almost a looping pitch. Often what happens is the batter overswings and they completely whiff altogether. Satan took Jesus up to a high place and he showed him the kingdoms of the world. And he essentially says, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you everything that you want. I'll quit fighting against you. You can have everything that you came here for. When, when Satan was offering Jesus, what he was doing was he was offering Jesus an alternate path. No suffering, no betrayal, no loneliness, and definitely no cross. Now, we ought to be familiar with this tactic. Satan, frankly, uses this tactic on us all the time. See if these words maybe sound familiar to any of you. You desire to be loved and be loved. You deserve to be loved and to love. You know, there's that man that you run into sometimes at the gym. Surely he would love you well. He seems so kind. Why keep fighting? Why keep hoping to be loved by your husband? Why don't you just give in? Or how about this temptation? You desire to be treated with honor? You can have it from that woman at work. She already treats you with dignity and respect. Why continue butting your head against a wall with your wife? She's never going to have anything but disdain and contempt for you. Everything you want is actually right there. How about this one? 
you desire to be chosen, just give in and look at pornography. There's, there's no risk of rejection there. There's no risk of being reminded how you don't measure up. You're exhausted, you're lonely, and it won't really hurt anyone at all. Each of those temptations are ultimately intended to turn us away from a God-given path of holiness and perseverance and flourishing to an alternate path that seems to promise flourishing, that seems to give us those things that we deeply desire, but it actually leads to chaos and isolation. And yet, all too often, we give in. Back to Jesus. Listen to how Jesus responds to Satan's offer of an alternate path. Jesus said to him, "'Away from me, Satan, for it is written, "'Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only.'" Jesus once again responds with Scripture, and finally Satan relents and leaves him. So once I was in a Christian bookstore in Greenville, South Carolina, um, I may have been in middle school, I might have been in high school, I don't remember, but I was in this Christian bookstore and I was looking at things, and I remember there was this couple who I assumed was a husband and wife, and they were kind of on the other side of this Bible display. And I remember them basically debating back and forth which Bible to buy, and I think the wife was arguing that they should get an NIV, and the husband was arguing that they should get a new King, or a King James Version, for those of you guys who remember the King James Bible. Lots of these and thous, very poetic, very pretty. And uh, I remember as they were sort of you know, go, going back and forth, it wasn't quite an argument, but it was at least a discussion. And I remember at one point the husband saying this, and this is almost verbatim. Of course, it's been 35 years or something. But he said something like this, if the King James Bible is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> and though I was not a biblical scholar at the moment, even I knew that the original writings of Scripture were not the King James Bible. Anyway, now, his reasoning was wrong, but his sentiment was right. In this battle against Satan, I would echo this man's thinking. If quoting Scripture was how Jesus fought against Satan, then that tactic should be good enough for us, right? Maybe we should employ it too. Jesus modeled it, Paul prescribed it, and the Holy Spirit empowers it.